In this episode, we take a look at the RPG and its origins in Prussian Wargaming, Dungeons and Dragons, and the creative use of college computers. Welcome to Subquests. My name is Byron, and this is Episode 1, A Brief History of the RPG, Part 1. So a question I've been thinking a lot about recently, and it's one of those questions that kind of stays a bit longer than it needs to and just begs you for an answer, is, where do you put the first of something? It's a question that seems simple on the surface. I mean, we all know where to put something that already has a place. But what about something that doesn't? This question was, in a way, prompted by a recent playthrough of Death Stranding, which, if you're not familiar, is a game in which Norman Reedus and a baby traverse a post-apocalyptic and haunted landscape to deliver packages and restore the bonds or strands that connect individuals together. In a Twitter post from 2019... Hideo Kojima, the designer behind the game, as well as a small indie franchise you may have heard about called Metal Gear Solid, wrote, quote, Death Stranding is not a stealth game. It is a brand new action game with the concept of connection, strand. I call it social strand system, or simply strand game, unquote. This type of tweet isn't out of character for Kojima, A brief look through his Twitter feed will show that to be the case, but this prompted many people, myself included, to ask the question, what? Death Stranding is definitely a unique experience, and it approaches many gaming norms in a unique way, and it's actually a personal favorite of mine, but does that really mean it deserves its own category? Is it really that different? For a while, it seemed the answer was simply... Well, no. For most people, myself included, it fit right into the action-adventure genre, even with its unconventional approach. But then, in 2021, something interesting happened. Someone else started developing a Strand game. In an interview with Kotaku from September of 2021, Carolyn Pettit spoke with game designer Zalavir Nelson Jr., of Strange Scaffold about his new game called Witch Strandings, which is a not-so-subtle nod to its inspiration. In the interview, Zalavir listed three core principles that, to him, define the strand genre. Nurturing, transportation, and physicality. And it was after I read this interview that the question I posed at the beginning, where do you put the first of something, really started to burrow its way into my head. In a very short period of time, all things considered, we essentially witnessed the birth of a new game genre. One that had an obvious heritage in the action-adventure genre, but one that also brought enough nuance and uniqueness to the table as to make it something different. But Byron, what does that have to do with RPGs, you may be asking? Well, it actually has a lot to do with it. RPGs, as we know them now, weren't plucked from the other as the polished, mechanically sound games we've come to know and love. Even now, conventions are constantly evolving, and mechanics are constantly iterated on. Take a look at games like Final Fantasy X and Final Fantasy XV, 
Two games from the same series, but vastly different in gameplay and style. But even with their differences, they share a few core elements that make them RPGs. And those elements came from somewhere. They were derived from something that came before. And as is the case with Death Stranding and the Strands genre, with enough nuance and uniqueness, those core elements became the basis for something new. So what led to the creation of the RPG in the first place? And how do we determine what the first RPG actually was? Where do you put the first of something? In this case, that something being the RPG. But before we try to answer those questions, a small disclaimer. One of the hardest parts of planning this episode, especially for someone like me who isn't a historian by trade, or a writer for that matter, was figuring out how far back to go. There's so much there, and each rabbit hole you go down leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, and before you know it, you're playing Flamingo Croquet with the Queen of Hearts. But I do mention that to emphasize that this episode is not meant to be a comprehensive history of every single individual designer game or set of rules that ever existed, or even of everything that had some sort of minimal influence over the RPG genre. You could, for example, probably make some sort of connection between modern RPGs and board games like chess, which have been around for nearly 1,500 years, or even further back to games like Or and Go if you really want to be that guy. But that's way beyond the scope of this podcast, and even more so beyond the scope of my knowledge. Instead, what I tried to do was trace an easy-to-follow line, connecting the dots where they make the most sense and hopefully telling some sort of story that's interesting. Hard decisions, but necessary for the scope of my show and for my own sanity. Which is why we begin our journey in 18th century Prussia at the advent of a new board game genre. The War Game. Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig was an entomologist and taught mathematics and natural science at a Prussian military academy in Brunswick. And in 1780, he published the rules for what could be considered the first non-abstract war game, subtly titled, Attempt to Build Upon Chess, a Tactical Game Which Two or More Persons Might Play. He would later publish a second edition of the rules with a shorter title, Das Kriegsspiel, simply, The War Game, in 1803. Helwig's proto-war game is also sometimes called the Brunswick War Game. Helwig's war game was mainly intended as a tool to teach his students military strategy, but he also envisioned it as a recreational game that people outside of the military sphere could also enjoy. In a letter dated September 26, 1801, Helwig wrote, quote, You know that it was in the year 1780 that I published my first essay on the tactical game. That idea came to me first through a need which I experienced of rendering sensible not to say palpable, a few principles and rules of the military art which my position as professor to the pages of the Duke of Brunswick required me to teach those young noblemen destined some day for military service. Independently of this chief object, my secondary one was to offer those who had no need of such resources an agreeable recreation by laying before them a game which, at first sight, presented different objects and operations which depended upon nothing but the rules and combinations made by the players. Unquote. The game of chess served as the core inspiration for Helwig's war game, though it differed in some major ways. Where the chessboard was a simple checkered grid, 
The Brunswick War Game utilized a grid that could represent multiple types of terrain, like mountains and rivers. The grid squares could be flipped to reveal different terrain, allowing for multiple terrain variations. Pieces also moved from abstract displays of individual troops to representations of entire military units with unique properties. You didn't have just knights or rooks or pawns. You had grenadiers and cavalry and pontoon boats that all acted differently. Helvig's game broke from many of the traditions set by games like chess and go while still maintaining their simplicity and ease of play. It was innovative and inspired multiple iterations over the next century and a half. I think a common trap many of us fall into, myself included, is that we have a tendency to consider historical events through a modern lens. Ideas may seem commonplace now, when they've been around for decades, or centuries in this case. It doesn't seem all that revolutionary for a board game to have something other than a generic grid. But at the same time, this was novel and new and unique, and the impact it likely had on Helvig's contemporaries can't be understated. Think about a time when you've experienced something new or novel, like the time you played your first video game, or saw Star Wars for the first time, or realize the little gas icon on your car's dash indicates which side the tank is on. It would have felt something like that. Sure, to those of us who have played war games like Warhammer, or video games like Total War, or even board games like Risk, the Brunswick War Game can seem simple, and even a little crude. But before 1780, nothing like this existed. It was a completely new concept, and more than that, Helvig's War Game laid the first few bricks of what would later become the foundation for some of the most memorable gaming experiences in existence. While Helvig's war game undoubtedly blazed the trail for modern war games and by extension influenced some core elements of the role-playing game, it's admittedly difficult to draw a line directly from the Brunswick war game to something like Final Fantasy. Over the next several decades, multiple new versions of the war game would come into play in a quite literal sense. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily within the scope of this episode to cover each and every one. That being said, there's one iteration that stands out in a few significant ways, and it's with this version of the war game that we can start to connect the genre's elements directly to tabletop role-playing games, the direct precursors to their video game counterparts. In 1811, during lessons on perhaps the most interesting subject known to man, fortifications with Prince William, later King William I and Prince Frederick, the heir presumptive to George III until his early death, the instructor recommended they study a new war game created by one Baron George Leopold von Weiswitz. The game was simple in construct, a box of sand for the battlefield that could be molded and sculpted to represent different terrain, with units represented by blocks of wood, much like modern politicians. But even with this unpretentious presentation, the two princes were intrigued and wanted to show the game to the Prussian monarch, King Frederick William III. Baron von Reiswitz was a bit reluctant to present what amounted to a giant sandbox to royalty, so he took some time to update the game's components to something more, well, suitable. A year later, in 1812, he presented the new version of the game to His Majesty. This version had color-coded terrain modeled in plaster, in relief, and units represented by porcelain cubes. His work was well-received, and there's definitely some sort of life lesson in there somewhere. 
Baron von Reiswitz's son, Lieutenant George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Reiswitz, continued to refine the rules, often collaborating with his fellow officers to ensure the rules allowed for, as much as possible, realistic battlefield strategies. In 1824, Lieutenant Reiswitz had the opportunity to present his refined version of the game to a group of Prussian military leaders. Prince Wilhelm was so impressed that he brought the game before the king and the general chief of staff, Lieutenant General Karl von Muthling. Pleased with the warm reception of the game, Reiswitz officially published the rules, concisely titled, Instructions for the Representation of Tactical Maneuvers Under the Guise of a War Game. Shortly after, he was summoned to a meeting with Lieutenant General Muffling to demonstrate his game, and as soon as Reiswitz began unfolding his maps, reflective of real places and real terrain, Lieutenant General Muffling was sold. And after the session was over, the general exclaimed, quote, Why, this is not a game. It is a veritable war school. Unquote. He recommended the game to be used as a training tool by the entire Prussian military, and for the next few decades, Reiswitz's war game, later simply called Kriegsspiel, became the standard bearer for wargaming throughout much of Europe. Sadly, the fame and recognition brought to Reiswitz by the game also brought those who despised him for it. Many of his contemporaries, jealous of his success and reputation among elite Prussian circles, took it upon themselves to actively sabotage his career with defamatory accusations ultimately resulting in his placement with the 3rd Brigade of Artillery at Torgo, a placement he saw as a disgrace. And on September 1st, 1827, Reiswitz took his own life. His father died soon after, and they were buried together in the same cemetery. While his story ended on a somber note, his legacy lives on, and it's due in no small part to his Kriegsspiel that we're able to enjoy the RPG as we know it. At this point, I do think it's important to examine just why Reiswitz's game was so well-received and how it revolutionized wargaming, finally moving the genre away from its roots in chess. One of the most immediate elements that stood out was the move away from a grid. No longer were pieces confined to moving one square at a time, they can move in any direction, with variables applied to terrain, unit makeup, and vicinity to the leader. The maps move from abstract representations of terrain to real-life battlefields, thanks in part to the proliferation of the printing press. Even elements that I assumed were more modern inventions, like fog of war preventing units from being shown until it made logical sense, to rules that were specifically written to limit metagaming, were present in Kriegsspiel. One of the more interesting tidbits I found when examining the rules was the fact that the game initially designed for two opposing armies, used the colors red and blue to differentiate between the two, a trope that's still present in many games today. But there were three changes that, to me, really stood out. The game used die rolls to calculate casualties and to resolve certain conflicts. Players issued orders to determine actions instead of moving pieces instantly. And finally, the game introduced an umpire to parse those orders resolve any conflicts that arose from them, and to interpret the rules. In essence, with Reiswitz's Kriegsspiel, he effectively launched the miniature wargaming genre and laid the mechanical foundation for the tabletop role-playing game. When I read the stories of people like Helvig and Reiswitz and other histories in general, I'm often struck by the sheer absurdity of it all, and I mean that in a good way. 
Here we have, in the case of Reiswitz, a Prussian lieutenant who had a life, a normal life. He had his own goals, his own wants and needs, and he decided, with his father, to create a war game to help teach military strategy during a time and for people who had just experienced one of the most tumultuous military campaigns in history. And to him, it was purely for that purpose. He was actually very much against the use of the word game to describe his work. Yet, eventually, Kriegspiel would take on a life of its own, and, well, we know the result. It's stories like that that make history worth learning. From the 1820s to the 1960s, the miniature wargaming hobby continued to grow and expand with new iterations, many introducing new elements to the genre. But there was one idea that began to take root throughout the 60s and 70s that had a major impact on the hobby, and one that would eventually help define what exactly a role-playing game was. The concept of playing units as characters with their own personalities, attributes, and stories that would emerge from playing over multiple scenarios would become more commonplace. Books like Joe Morshauser's How to Play War Games in Miniature from 1962 and Mike Carr's Flight Combat Game, Fight the Skies from 1968, emphasize playing as characters and detailed ways to add personalities and backstories to your wargame units. This obviously led to questions surrounding how one was supposed to play a game when units had personalities of their own, and it was a question that caused some tension in the wargaming community. At the same time, another important change was on the rise. It's worth pointing out, if you haven't noticed already, that, up until this point, wargaming had largely been driven by a desire to mimic the battles of old. There were obviously some variations, some games allowed for fictional scenarios, but by and large, most war games assumed they took place in the real world, with real nations and real places. But in the late 50s, this began to change. Tony Bath would famously lead a war game campaign set in the Hyborian Age, a fantasy setting based on the pulp fantasy works of Robert E. Howard. You may know it better as the home of Conan the Barbarian. And beginning in 1954, another seminal work would be released. One that would change the fantasy genre forever. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Soon after, fantasy worlds and ideas inspired by Tolkien, Howard, and others started to find themselves in the midst of war game campaigns. Leonard Pat, a hobbyist wargamer and college student at the time, is credited as the first to implement a true fantasy setting into a war game with a simple two-page rule set written for the New England Wargamers Association in 1970. But the first true fantasy wargaming system, and the one that would act as the transition point between wargames and role-playing games, was Chainmail, published in 1971 by Guide on Games and written by Jeff Perrin and Gary Gygax. Chainmail originated from a series of rules written by Gygax and Perrin a few years earlier in a wargaming magazine. Funnily enough, the fantasy aspect of Chainmail was an afterthought and was relegated to a 14-page supplement at the end of the book. This is another one of those points where it's important, I think, to take a step back and try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who were there. As someone who's read The Lord of the Rings on multiple occasions and has seen the movies, played the games, and generally has more than a passing interest in Tolkien's work, 
We even named our dog Arwen. It's easy to forget that at some point, not too long ago, the Lord of the Rings didn't exist. If the three of you who are listening have even a passing interest in fantasy, you've undoubtedly come across something that's been directly influenced by Tolkien. Elves and orcs and wizards and bearded dwarfs and hobbit feet have been so ingrained in our culture that it seems like those things have always been there. And in the same way, the idea of gaming as a character is a trope that exists in nearly every video game genre, whether it's an RPG, a FPS, or even a walking sim. And it's the combination of these two ideas, along with the mechanical foundations laid by Reiswitz's Kriegspiel, that would culminate in the creation of the tabletop role-playing game, and, simultaneously, the computer role-playing game. In 1974, Gary Gygax and Dave Arnson, through their new company, Tactical Study Rules, published Dungeons and Dragons, a collection of three books, Men and Magic, Monsters and Treasure, and The Underworld and Wilderness. And history was made. The D&D of 1974 is not the same D&D that we're familiar with now. To modernize, the game would seem bare bones, incomplete even. And there was a whole period of time where there was a big question as to what exactly D&D was. Was it a war game? Or was it something else? The original full title of the 1974 box set was Dungeons and Dragons Rules for Fantastic Medieval War Games Campaigns Playable with Paper and Pencil and Miniature Figures. An obvious nod to its wargaming roots as well as keeping tradition with the long titles that the genre was apparently fond of. And both Gygax and Arneson had extensive experience in the wargaming scene. In its early years, D&D was even marketed as a wargame. And these were questions that rippled through the wargaming community at large. And it's at this point that we can revisit the question I posed at the beginning of the episode. Where do you put the first of something? Dungeons and Dragons was definitely different than what had come before. But was it different enough? The answer was, as we know now, yes. In addition to beautifully combining the elements of wargaming, high fantasy settings, and individual characters, Dungeons & Dragons also brought another innovation to the forefront. Stat-based character creation. In other words, characters were no longer nameless, faceless units. They were people, with motivations, personalities, backgrounds, and skills that made them unique. They delved the deepest dungeons, they fought the most frightening monsters, and were rewarded with treasures untold, becoming stronger and more skilled as they progressed. Dungeons & Dragons wasn't just a game about combat. It was a game about adventure. And with the intentionally flexible and admittedly vague rules, no two adventures ever had to be the same. A new genre had been created. The role-playing game. There was still, though, a crisis of identity surrounding what exactly a role-playing game actually was. There were many players who had grown up with wargaming who were a bit reluctant to see Dungeons & Dragons as anything other than a game of combat, while others were enthralled with the opportunity to simply have an adventure as a rogue or as a wizard. John Peterson's book The Elusive Shift, How Role-Playing Games Forge Their Identity, explores that crisis in great detail, and it's worth a read if you're even remotely interested in the topic. Regardless, Dungeons & Dragons was indeed something new, 
and it directly inspired the creation of the first computer role-playing games. And it's here that we finally reach the culmination of everything that had come before. One of the most interesting parts of studying history, to me anyway, is when you find seemingly unrelated things existing in the same period. Kind of like how Nintendo was founded just three years after the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York. And it's even more interesting when you see those unrelated things come together. At the same time, wargaming entered its period of contemplation over what exactly a wargame really was in the 60s, another innovation was being established at the University of Illinois. Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. Play-Doh for short was a new distributed computer system developed in 1960 to help students learn and teachers teach. By the early 70s, Play-Doh had developed into a powerful networked computer system, mostly relegated to use in academic institutions. But it also allowed certain ingenious students the ability to flex their creative muscles. In 1974, the same year Dungeons & Dragons released, the first known computer role-playing game, mysteriously titled M119H or M199H depending on the source, was developed. Sadly, since Play-Doh was meant for serious academic use only, the file was deleted and lost to the void and little is known of the game itself. But, just a year later, in 1975, another computer role-playing game, simply titled The Dungeon, would be released on the Play-Doh system. The creator, Rusty Rutherford, sneakily named the file Pettit 5 to avoid deletion, and, thankfully, it worked. The dungeon took direct inspiration from Dungeons & Dragons. You choose your profession from a small list of classes, roll stats for your character with the familiar attributes of strength, dexterity, constitution, and intelligence that Dungeons & Dragons pioneered, and you explore dungeon, fighting enemies, discovering secret passageways, and picking up loot on the way. Sure, the story elements were lacking. It was a straightforward dungeon crawl, with little in the way of narrative. Your goal was to make, bank, and leave. But the mechanics, and more importantly, the theme, was there. The dungeon was, undeniably, a RPG. In many ways, I think I bit off a bit more than I could chew with this episode. The history of the RPG is filled with so much detail and contains so many great stories that it's nearly an impossible task to do it justice. There's an extremely deep series of rabbit holes when it comes to both war games and tabletop RPGs, and it was extremely difficult to parse what was and wasn't relevant to the overarching story I'm trying to tell. My goal from the get-go was to distill what was there as much as I could in a way that made it easy to follow, and hopefully I've done that. Thankfully, there are a ton of resources out there that do it better than I ever could, many of which I used extensively when researching this episode. You can find those sources in the show notes at subquestspod.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at subquests and on Instagram at subquestspod.com. 